I'm excited to get into the message this evening. How many people are ready for a word? All right. As you know, we are in a message series, and tonight we are going into part three. Uh, this is a four-part series, so this is part three this evening. Next week will be part four. We'll wrap that up. Uh, and then Katie and I are going to be taking a little bit of time off in July, so I'm excited to kind of bring this message together this evening and next week. As you know, I shared in the beginning of the month, this is a, a message that's been on my heart, just a, a passion, a stirring for well over a year now that God's been working in and through me, and uh, I've just got a lot of fire and passion to bring this word tonight and next week. And so this evening... We are going to talk about the pride of work, the pride of work. And I want to say that for me, the first two weeks of the series, we opened up talking about work is uh, something we do for God and to God. Work is redeemed by God. It's, it's good because God created it. Work is meaningful, purposeful, fulfilling. It should bring us joy. It, we should be productive and fruitful in the way that we labor when we serve God. There's a lot of wonderful promises, blessings that God has in store for us through our work. These next two weeks, tonight and next week, I would say it's kind of a tension that has to be balanced in the way we approach work as God has designed it. You see, our intention is that we want to pursue God's design. We want to approach work and labor, our service to God, as He has designed it, because when we do, it will be blessed and it will flourish. And so we know that a huge part of that is we're doing it for God and not for man, that we have faith God will prosper us and multiply the work we set out to do. There's an important thing we have to understand about work that Satan tries to do, which he comes to attack in this area of trying to pull men and women into a place where they fall into pride with their work. It's a dangerous and slippery slope. And if we're not careful, watchful, vigilant in terms of how we go about our work, then the enemy can lead us astray and we could begin to get puffed up fall into a place of pride, and then the things that God has designed for us through our work and through our service and labor to Him can begin to be tainted, if you will, by the efforts of the enemy. And uh, I know this well myself, and I've seen it with many a people. And so we're going to kind of attack that, dive into that tonight. Um, and so I feel like over this tonight and next week, we're going to expose some things about work. Maybe you've thought of, maybe you've known, or maybe it's new to you, but we're going to expose some things, kind of shine a light on some things that help us to know that there are ways the enemy tries to come at us to really take this thing that God intends to be beautiful and wonderful and begin to make it very dysfunctional in our lives and sort of stifle the work that God wants to do in and through us. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to begin in Genesis chapter 11. Go there, Genesis 11. 
And for the most part tonight, we're going to talk about a story. It's really a nine verses in the book of Genesis 11. It's the story of the Tower of Babel. We spoke in week one primarily uh, talking out of Genesis chapters one through three about the creation and design for work in the garden for man. Last week, we spoke mainly out of Ecclesiastes, the idea of work being meaningful. It's not vain. Tonight, we're going to speak about the pride of work, and we're going to camp out mainly in Genesis 11. So let's start by reading verses 1 through 9. Now, the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Babel, if you don't know, means confusion. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just ask you tonight to speak to us. God, open our hearts. uh, Just prepare our hearts to receive your word. I ask you, God, that you would give great revelation tonight. As only you can do, Holy Spirit, to each and every one of us, that we may understand your design for our work, for our labor, God, and that we may be aware of the things the enemy would try to do to attack that, that there be a great just exposing, uncovering, unveiling tonight for many, many people, seeing with spiritual eyes, hearing with spiritual ears the truth that you want to share, and God, that that would bring the transformation that's needed in the lives of many. I ask that you'd speak through me clearly, accurately, sharply, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, there are a lot of things, you know, you could probably talk about in this story, in my opinion. Uh, Certainly one of the things that you can't overlook, it's well known about the Tower of Babel is, as we just read, that God confused the languages. Um, So just to sort of point out here, there was one language in the earth prior to this time. Everyone communicated in the same language. There was no confusion. And as a response to this move of pridefulness that people set out to accomplish in their own strength to defy God. God said, I'm going to have to bring judgment here. And he confounded or confused the languages. And so there were many languages after that, obviously still on the earth to this day. 
Now, there are a lot of scholars that believe, and I, I subscribe to this myself, actually, I do, that the language confusion that God brought, the restoration of that began at the day of Pentecost, when all spoke in other tongues and all heard them in their own language. There was a consistent communication, and everybody that spoke different languages heard in their own native tongue, miraculously. Paul says, he says, I pray with the language of men, but I also pray with the language of the angels, or a heavenly language. We know this to be synonymous with praying in tongues or praying in the Spirit. And so there's a heavenly language. I I suggest to you when we experience heaven when we experience glory there will be one language in the heavenly places and this thing will all be restored there'll be different tribes different nations all those things but somehow i can't wrap my mind around it but this one language as god originally intended it would be restored back so there's a beautiful part to that but there's also this element of the story i want to really touch on tonight which is this attempt by men led by a man named Nimrod, we read in the story, to build this tower that would ascend all the way to heaven. And in this story, we're going to recognize how some of the efforts of the enemy to attack us in our approach to work can lead us into a place of pride. And I want to ask you three questions. I believe all three of these questions speak to ways that we can that pride can attack in our lives if we're not careful, if we're not vigilant. How many people know you've got to know your enemy? Am I right? You've got to know him. You've got to be wise to his tactics, to the devices and wiles of the devil, Paul says. And so the first question here, if you're taking notes, is where is my trust? Where is my trust? And so... If we put our trust in ourselves for our accomplishments rather than put our trust in God, that's a form of pridefulness. We find ourselves to be the source of the strength and do not place our dependency upon God for that. It's a a form of pride. So what Nimrod did was he brought all the people of the earth together to the valley of Shinar. He gathered them up and basically said, we're going to camp out here and we're going to build this tower up to heaven. Now, you've got to understand from reading through Scripture in all the previous chapters that this was a direct defiance of the commands of the Lord. To be fruitful and multiply and what? Fill the whole earth. You remember that? So what Nimrod is saying is we're not going to do what God's commanded. We're going to do things our own way. We're going to come together and we're going to all stay here in one place. And we're going to build together here instead of following through with the commands of the Lord, which was to spread out and multiply and fill the entire earth. Well, how many know that when we try to do things our own way in our own pride, they will never prosper? Am I right? And that's that's basically what Nimrod's saying. He's defying what God's commands have already been. Now, most likely, this is a response that he's having to the judgment that came through the flood. He's fearful. 
He probably thinks, like many of us have maybe thought before, something bad has happened or things have occurred in our life we don't fully understand. He probably thinks, I don't know that I can trust God. God just brought a flood and wiped out the whole world. So how am I going to resort, how am I going to handle that? We're going to gather the people together and we're going to build a tower. It's high enough that it's to the heaven that if God tried to flood the earth again, it wouldn't even matter because we are going to to make this thing work in our own strength. You understand that? And so instead of spreading out and being fruitful and filling the whole earth, he says, let's come together and let's, let's, let's focus on our own strength and let's build a tower that grows so high that it actually reaches all the way up to heaven. And he convinces them to do this. And so they get led, uh, led by their own personal pursuits instead of trusting God and his word. Now, how many know it's easier sometimes in our flesh to camp out and hang tight and play preservation, safety, security mode, isn't it? Rather than step out and actually trust God where risk is is involved and faith is involved. Yeah, we don't know what's over the rest of the earth. We don't really know what all that looks like, but God says to do it. So now we have to trust him if we're going to step out where he's leading us to go. Or we can stay here where we are. And the thing is, the irony is, is that this actually can never happen. But think in our own strength, we can actually hold it all together. We'll prevail on our own. Let me say something to you. We need God. We need to want God. We we need to be unsatisfied with human results, human capabilities. You could live your whole life in a realm of natural possibilities. And you might be impressed every now and then. But I just want to suggest to you that God intends for you to be completely unsatisfied with human potential and to crave and contend for supernatural results and possibilities in your life. They're hovering and gravitating towards what they think in their own strength can be accomplished. The tower's pretty impressive. It's pretty impressive. It's all the way to heaven, it says. Now, you've got to dig into this a little bit to understand, okay, because it's, it's not actually up in God's throne room. You see, there's three heavens in the Bible. We know that. Paul says he was taken into the third heaven. The first heaven, you read through Psalms and other parts of the Bible, and, and you'll get this, but the first heaven uh, essentially is the earth's atmosphere. The psalmist speaks about eagles fly in the heavens, okay? That's the, that's the first realm. The second heaven is the celestials, the stars in the universe. The Bible says that God put the stars, the planets, in the heavens, okay? The third heaven is the abode of God. It's the highest heaven, and he is seated on a throne above all of that. So think about this. This, this, The tower is pretty impressive by man's standards. It gets to heaven, meaning it gets to the upper atmosphere. It got really, really high, probably where the birds fly. But there's a specific phrase in here, if you catch it, that gives you a real good indication. God said, let us go down. (laughs) 
and see the tower. You ever, like, everything's so specific and so good in Scripture. God said, we have to, they, they've done a thing. They feel like they've got really, really high. They're up in the heavens. We have to get down and come down to actually look at this work that they've accomplished. This is what that tells me. No matter how much you think you can accomplish in your own strength, it will always pale in comparison to the things that God sees for you and wants to accomplish through you if you will be God-dependent and not man-dependent. If you rely on His strength and His ability for your work, for your productivity, and for your fruitfulness, rather than saying, everything I do in my work, it's going to be by my own hand and by my own strength. It'd be the difference in approaching it like this. Yeah, I make money to provide for myself versus I can, I can be productive because God has given me the ability to go out and generate income and use my gifts to be fruitful. Does that make sense? It's, it's God-dependent rather than man-dependent. So where is my trust? Have I placed that on in God? Am I allowing Him to lead me into the place that He wants to take me for my work and for what I'm doing to serve Him? Or am I confining myself to, to try to be satisfied with the safety of the realm of my own natural human capabilities? And I just want to encourage you that God is calling, deep calls unto deep. God is calling us out into the supernatural realm where He exists and He can fill us with all of the possibilities that He sees for us. Amen? Amen. So that was number one. Uh, the question was, where is my trust? And if you notice, it says there's three statements where it says, let us, let us, let us. There's no indication of God focusing on themselves. We're going to do this on our own. Let us make bricks and mortar. Let us build a tower. Let us make a name for ourselves. No indication that they're involving God in their pursuits and in their accomplishments we have to have a willingness to be god dependent i mean you can kind of understand that but there's got to be a willingness on our part to say yeah i'm going to surrender to god i'm i'm willing to live my life in a place where i'm fully dependent on god and not my own strength Second question is, what's my motive? What is my motive? See, in many cases, man approaches his work, knowingly or unknowingly, with an unpure motive to gain glory. To gain glory and recognition and praise for himself. And the King here, Nimrod, in Babel, this place where this named Babel after all this happened, scholars directly link, this is interesting, Babel to the future empire of Babylon, which occurred, you know, in its peak 5-600 B.C. And the prophet Isaiah specifically rebuked the king of Babylon for very similar behavior 
as Nimrod. And then the Lord spoke through the prophet Isaiah and actually went beyond just the king of Babylon and rebuking his pride to sin and puff himself up and actually spoke prophetically about Satan himself. He says that you tried to ascend up Lucifer into the stars and the sky and exalt yourself above the throne and and be like God, yet you were brought down. And so you see this pattern, this progression that that links this these places together. And if you go all the way to the end in Revelation 17 and 18, it talks about the empire of the Antichrist actually being called the kingdom of Babylon, which we know the Antichrist exalts himself up on the throne and declares himself to be God. What I'm trying to say is there's a prideful spirit that tries to dog men's trail, something that's deeply rooted in the flesh. There's this need to say, look at me and look at what I have done. And it leads people to approach things like work and accomplishments in a way where the motive is not necessarily to bring God glory, but to receive glory and recognition and praises from men for ourselves. Now, the thing is, is that when we approach this to give God glory, to bring him honor, and that is truly where our heart is, then the, the, the praises and the encouragement from people can be a real blessing. They can be a real encouragement because we're grounded in a place where we're not doing it for that, but God's blessing us by allowing us to be encouraged by our friends and family and people around us. But this is how you know you're in a good place with it, is if, if, if it's unhealthy, then the praises and the accolades and the accomplishments can throw you off real far one way or another. They can cause you to be more puffed up and more prideful and think more of yourself and your own abilities than you should when that praise and recognition is coming. Or when it's not there, or the opposite, you're, you're being critiqued really harshly, it can cause us to be unnecessarily tore down. Does that make sense? And so we have to understand that our, our whole approach in what we do is to bring God the glory for what happens, not for us to try and take our own recognition and then find some sort of value uh, and meaning in that for ourselves. You know, Jesus never spoke. I've thought a lot about this, Tim, because I think this is an area where I've struggled with. You know, I'm, I'm driven, I'm motivated, I'm competitive, and so... I think there's this, th- there's this, I have to constantly watch myself, you know, you're not doing things for the wrong reasons. I'm not getting filled up by the wrong things. And Jesus never really spoke about personal ambitions. I don't know if you ever thought about it. He never really spoke about going out and per- having personal ambitions and accomplishments for ourselves. He, he spoke about serving and not being served. He said, hey, when you do things that are charitable and that are good, try to do them in secret. Try to do them where people, where you're not trying to be seen. 
novel thought, right? Try to sort of fly below the radar. And when you do, this is what's amazing. He says, and when you do, your father who's in heaven, he'll reward you openly. But he warns them. He says, if you if you take the rewards of men, then you forfeit the rewards of your father in heaven. So if I seize that glory, yeah, that's right. Did a good job. And I'm not saying we don't accept praise. I'm, I'm, I hope you understand what I'm saying. I'm saying it does something for me in my soul that it shouldn't. <laughs> when that happens, then I'm forfeiting the greater reward that my father has planned for me. He even says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. He talks about doing things in secret. Personal ambitions can threaten to extend beyond a godly lifestyle. Now, I've heard things and read things, uh, articles and stuff over the last year. Let's see how to say this. Where, you know, women have been praised for aborting children in order to pursue their dreams and ambitions. As if that's valor, noble. And so what I'm saying is that our personal ambitions and desires never extend beyond what God's word and God's ways are instructing us to do and how he's instructing us to live. And God's saying, I, I want you, I have rewards for you. I want to bring you favor and influence, but it's got to be by my hand, not your hand. And when we try to do those things ourselves, because we're drawn to the praises of men, you know what we do? We begin to construct our own power. We begin to build our own little thing to try to reach up, to try to gain that recognition. When God alone is the one who is actually able to elevate or promote us into the places of influence that he has for us. Listen to this. This is in Psalms 75. Verses 6 and 7. For exaltation comes neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south. But God is the judge. He puts down one and he exalts another. See, God has every intention of promoting, if you will, exalting us. But as Jesus said, he who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted by the mighty hand of God. And that's the way that we should all desire to find our influence here in this world with men, with other people, is because God's hand is actually doing that work for us and through us, not us trying to force that thing on our own. As Nimrod did and the king of Babylon and even Satan himself, it's an unholy ambition the last question i have here number three is where is my worth where is my worth so pride can tempt us in our work by finding by us trying to find and receive and get some sort of fill out of praises and glory from men and it can try and 
tempt us and get at us and how it attacks us in the area of not trusting God but putting our trust in myself. I'm, I'm safe. I'll take care of me. And this last one is a big one. It's where is my worth or where is my value? And that statement where he's, they say, let us make a name for ourselves strikes me. Name is associated with identity. Let our work define us is basically what they're saying. Let us find our worth and our value in our identity in what we do. And the thing is, it's an empty pursuit. But it's a tempting one for many a men throughout all of the ages. Let's go and build an empire. Let's go and build a career. Let's, let's build accomplishments. And then we begin to associate value and worth and identity in those things that we have done. The thing is, the way God's created it, work is not who we are. It's what we do, but it's not who we are. Work has great meaning and great purpose, but only when it flows out of a place of secured identity. It's not our identity in itself. We have to recognize that Jesus, through his redemption for us, he gives us our identity. The Bible says he gives us a new nature. He gives us, makes us a new creation. We're a new man. It says he gives us, a, he'll give us a, to the overcomer, he'll give a new name. You see that? We find our name, our identity, our worth and value in our relationship with Christ and never in any accomplishments or accolades or anything that we would ever do through our work or through our labor here on this earth. But many times people get that backward. And whenever the accomplishments or the, the career or the work begin to unravel, then there's an identity crisis that begins to unfold for them. Who am I? Where's my worth? Where's my value? I'm not meaningful anymore because this other part of what I've been doing to find my meaning is slipping away from me. But Jesus wants to reveal our identity to us, and he wants us to live from that place of identity. You know, God when he would bring people into his covenant many times, he would change their name. We know that Abram was became Abraham, Sarai became Sarah, Jacob became Israel, Saul became Paul. It's kind of a way of saying when you come into relationship with God, you're a new person. You're defined differently now. You're a child of God. You're, you're in Christ and that's where your identity and your security comes from. And then your work begins to flow from that place. You're unthreatened and un, you're not thrown off by any of the ups and downs, possibly in a career field or a, a work environment. 
whatever's going on is doing nothing to change your sense of identity and security and who you are and in whose you are. Am I making sense to anybody? Jesus says that, you're, you know, just as Jesus, God is Jira for us, he's provider, he is also the source of our redemption and our identity. He is Rapha, he is healer and restorer. And he brings us to this place where we know now we are a child of God. We are defined not by what we do, but by the name we have, which is a son of God or a daughter of God. And now everything we do begins to flow out of that place. You see, you don't find identity in work or in what you do. Your your acceptance in your identity is not a reward For your work, it's a sweet resting place from which your very best work will flow. Oh, I don't know if you're hearing me tonight on that. Your your best work, your most fruitful work, your greatest contribution to bless and impact your community and your family and everything, that will flow from a place of solid, secure identity in knowing where your worth and your value actually comes from. And that we will not be misguided or swayed by the praises and accolades that tempt us to falsely puff us up or unnecessarily tear us down. And this is the beauty of the gospel. That Jesus redeems us to himself to secure our identity that through him we may be empowered now to do great works. And the order is many times reversed for people. The works is where the value is. The works is what they feel like earns them something. But the truth is, God loves you right now as you are. He's got great plans for you. But his love for you right now has nothing to do with anything you accomplish or any awards that you might earn. The greatest things that God has for you planned to do will actually be birthed out of the resting place of your sweet identity in him. And oh, he has great things for us. But he loves us unconditionally. And it's so important that we understand that. You know, think about this for just a second. As we come to know Christ and we're in relationship with him. It would be accurate to say we fall more and more in love with him. Wouldn't it? I mean, I'm more in love with Jesus today than I've ever been in my life. And I feel like I can say that every day again and again and again. We fall more and more in love with Jesus. But here's an interesting thought. He's not falling in love with you. Because you've never been more loved than you are right now. It's not progressive for God. He's not coming to fall more in love with you. He already loves you with the full unconditional capacity of his heavenly love 
And there's nothing you can do to earn it. It's a free gift of grace that God wants to invite us in to enjoy and experience. So the idea of work and what we have to do while we're here on this earth, it's awesome. God says, I have great and mighty things planned for you. You want to know about them? Call to me and ask me, and I'll answer you, and I'll show you, and I'll lead you into them, and I'll empower you. But make no mistake, you'll never find your value or your worth in those things. They will only be fulfilled and accomplished if we understand who we are and where our identity truly comes from. Amen? I'll close with this. God is always knocking at the door of our hearts. He says, I'm here. I'm knocking. Will you open the door and let me come in? You see, we've got to give God the place in our lives that he wants to have. We've got to say yes to his invitation. Every single person created by God for good works, great things, major accomplishments for him. But we've got to put our trust in him. We've got a desire to bring him glory. And we've got to know depth of our heart that in him alone is where we find our worth and our value and when a child of God discovers that and becomes secure in that they begin to live their life and go about their work and labor in the most incredible productive and fruitful might I add, might I add, it is very attractive. It is very attractive to a world that doesn't know where their identity comes from. That doesn't have that, hasn't found that. When they experience, encounter someone who's fully secure in who they are and in whose they are, Nothing can replace that. There's no artificial copy. There's no phony. There's no fake that you can present that will have the same effect. But you walk in the security and the confidence that you're a child of God. Your identity has been secured. Your worth and your value has been bought for you through the most precious blood of Jesus Christ. And you will walk with a strength and a confidence that will be unwavering in all the things that the enemy will try to do in this world to derail you, to pull you, to try to lead you into a place of pride. God will keep you anchored and steady because you find your security and your identity in Him. Amen? Amen. Would you stand to your feet with me tonight as we close? Now I want to invite our prayer team. 
come down, maybe some of our pastors. If you're here, you need prayer for anything at all. Maybe you say, you know what, I, I really want to give my life to Christ. I want to grow closer to God in my relationship with Him. Maybe you're struggling with something in your relationships, your finances, your health. We want to pray with you. We want to stand with you and minister with you. Watching online, we've got folks who are ready to pray with you as well. You can just put hand praying emoji up there in the comment section. That's what we're here for, to love on you, encourage you. Before we go, though, let's just give the Lord praise. Give him our worship before we leave here tonight. serve a perfect God, don't we? Where's your trust? Motives. I'll tell you what. If you put them in God, you don't have to worry about any of that. Give Him the glory for everything. And your identity will be through Him. And there'll be no question whatsoever. So as you go this week, be blessed, be favored, and let His countenance just shine upon you this week. 
and the good things of God because we serve a good, good God. Amen. You're dismissed. You're loved. And be blessed. We'll see you next week.